0: this is law and disorder
1: today on law and disorder we interview paul jay for the full hour to discuss his investigative work about the attacks of september 11th
0: 2001. paul jay has been following the 9-11 story for 20 years he's read the documents he's interviewed the key players in it He tells a story that I think the listeners will be extremely interested in hearing.
1: Stay with us.
0: I'm New York City attorney and author, Michael Stephen Smith.
2: And I'm New York City attorney and activist, Heidi Boghossian.
0: The events of 9-11 were a crushing blow to democracy and the rule of law in our country. The attacks paved the way for two illegal wars, first the American war against Afghanistan and then Iraq. It opened the way for the national security state to develop expansively and implement a vast surveillance program on American citizens. The attack on the World Trade Center and then on the Pentagon happened 20 years ago and in retrospect was a turning point in American and world history. Law and Disorder Radio was launched 3 years after 9/11. Our mission was to defend both democracy and the rule of law. The 9-11 attacks were a crime against humanity, but instead of treating them as a crime, it was turned into an occasion to launch aggressive and illegal wars. The Nuremberg Trials against the Nazis, who started World War II, defined aggressive war as the ultimate crime because it held within it all lesser crimes. In our show today, we examine the new evidence on who was responsible for the attacks on 9-11. The new evidence is a six-year-old FBI report released on President Biden's order last month. Biden was told by the families of the victims of 9-11 that unless this report was released, he would not be welcomed at any of the memorial services. The FBI report demonstrates the complicity of the government of Saudi Arabia in the attacks. It was two Saudi Arabian government officials that helped the first two hijackers when they came to America. They were given money and help to get into flight school. Then they hijacked an American airline plane and flew it into the Pentagon. Senator Bob Graham was the head of the Intelligence Committee that investigated 9-11. Whistleblower Thomas Drake was a top official at the National Security Agency. Lawrence Wilkerson was the Chief of Staff for Secretary of State Colin Powell. We speak today in a special one hour show with journalist Paul Jay, who interviewed all three of them. Paul Jay is a journalist and a filmmaker. He's the founder and host of the Analysis.news, a video and audio current affairs interview and commentary show and website. Jay was the founder of the Real News Network and is currently working on a documentary series with Daniel Ellsberg based on Ellsberg's book, The Doomsday Machine. Paul J. welcome to Law & Disorder.
1: Thanks for inviting me. We want to talk to you today about the continuing unraveling of the cover-up of the Saudi Arabian government's involvement with the attacks of 9-11. President Biden was told by the families of the victims of 9-11 that he would be unwelcome at ceremonies honoring the 20th anniversary unless he released a six-year-old FBI investigative report. He did so. What did the report reveal?
2: Um, Well, first of all, let me sort of congratulate both of you because most journalists and and, uh, uh, other people in the media don't want to even look into what really happened on 9-11. And maybe we can talk about why that is. It's, it's, it's a topic worth discussing in itself. Um, and let me just add one more thing of, of sort of context here about why all this matters. Like, why are we revisiting the Saudi role and why, you know, 20 years later is 9 11 significant? Um, and and I, the answer is probably obvious, but let me state it anyway. Um, I don't know if there's been an American war that didn't begin with a bunch of big lies. Uh, or to to establish pretext for what were almost always or perhaps always wars of aggression. Uh, You can even go back to the beginnings of the Cold War and and the lies that there was a missile gap. Uh, The Soviet Union was planning to attack the United States, which which was all a fraud. Uh, Gulf of Tonkin in Vietnam, and and, and it goes on from there. And uh, More recently and obviously the lies about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. American wars begin based on lies. Now the other thing, and this goes along with lying, is I don't know, has there ever been a war anybody or any country waged that wasn't a conspiracy? Uh, Countries don't come out and and, and uh, openly say everything they plan to do or how they plan to engage in the war. So uh, this idea that there's something uh, uh, outlandish about conspiracy theory. Um, it's the most ridiculous thing that's been out there in in the politics and media of course there are uh, conspiracies attached with warfare and, and other things <laughs> I mean, uh, but but and 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 there are also phony conspiracies and yes there are conspiracy theories that have no basis in fact uh, but what's a bigger conspiracy than say lying about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq when they knew there weren't any uh, and, and there were many people involved in that conspiracy, and it came out that it was that it was a conspiracy. Now, no, that's uh, the other side of all of this. There's no accountability for what happened, uh, lying the uh, United States into an illegal war invasion of Iraq. But of course, there was a conspiracy uh, to try to fake evidence and so on. Uh, you know, anywhere from the supposed yellow cake story in Niger, you know, trying to lean on the ambassador to lie about what he found. And I mean, it goes on and on. So the fact that there was a, I think, a conspiracy uh, in the uh, surrounding and part at the heart of the events of 9/11, um, is, is, it's kind of ridiculous to say otherwise. You can't get a bunch of hijackers coordinating, Uh, their uh, activities on airplanes without it being a conspiracy. Uh, But but obviously, I think it goes much further than that, which means the involvement of the Saudi government and the involvement of the White House. Uh, So with all that being said, uh, let me talk a bit about this recent uh, reveal or supposed reveal in that uh, declassified FBI document. Um, I'm not— completely in the weeds on this whole issue as much as I used to be. Uh, So I've I've read through the recent FBI document, um, and uh, so I may have missed something. But I don't see anything in this FBI document that wasn't already released by the Joint Congressional Investigation into the events of 9-11 that was released in 2002, co-chaired by Senator Bob Graham, who I interviewed. Almost everything that I saw in this recent FBI document, even though it's dated what 20, uh, based on an interview with somebody who they don't say who in 2015, when you read the 28 pages that were originally redacted by the White House of the Joint Congressional Investigation, uh, the entire story that I see in this recent FBI release is all there in 2002, and, and it's based on FBI documents. Which means the FBI had all this stuff years ago, and and so uh, the, what sparked this release now is the um, uh, 9/11 families want to uh, are suing the Saudi government, and I can understand why they wanted this document uh, declassified. It's a, it's harder, perhaps harder evidence than the uh, conclusions of the uh, joint congressional investigation, but it actually doesn't say anything new. Uh, about the involvement of Saudi officials in the uh, Saudi embassy, uh, the Saudi consulate in Los Angeles. Um, but the, uh, what's missing, and, and this is really critical what's missing, because in the media coverage of the FBI, this recent FBI uh, document, they don't talk about the most important thing because it's not in that FBI document, or it is, and, and it's redacted because there's a lot of names reacted in this recent release. But the name is Bandar, Prince Bandar, the Saudi ambassador to the uh, United States, whose nickname, if everybody remembers, was Bandar Bush. And there's this famous photograph of uh, President Bush and, and uh, Ambassador Bandar, Prince Bandar, sitting on the terrace of the White House just a few days after 9-11, smoking cigars, and and frankly, looking very pleased with themselves. Um, so... The, the media coverage of this recent release, it's kind of ridiculous, at least the mainstream media that I've seen, that they don't hearken back to the uh, conclusions of the Joint Congressional Committee and, and, most importantly, that this activity of these couple of uh, people in the Saudi consulate in Los Angeles and so on that this recent release talks about. That clearly, you put that together with what the Joint Congressional Committee found, and it's all done under the auspices of Bandar. This isn't some rogue uh, characters. And what the FBI found, uh, it's mentioned in this recent one, but it's even more elaborated in the Joint Congressional Committee. As the, these two guys, particular, and uh, Barumi, I believe, is one, and the other one's Basan. In all likelihood, according to the FBI and uh, many sources of theirs, they're agents of the Saudi intelligence services, and they're directly uh, connected with facilitating uh, the 9/11 uh, hijackers, particularly or specifically in San Diego, and and there's lots of evidence of, of a direct uh, involvement. Uh, but it goes further if you go back to the Joint Congressional Committee. There's direct links between Prince Bandar. And these guys, uh, one of them, uh, one of them's wives was receiving. Uh, I think it was two or three thousand dollars a month from Bandar's wife. There's a direct payment in the in the redacted 28 pages. A, a direct payment between Bandar's bank account and uh, one of the one of the two people mentioned in this recent report. I, I think it was uh, Bassan uh, got some money directly, and then Bassan's wife. Um, and why the mainstream media? isn't using this as an opportunity to really not just go after the Saudis, which is honestly so obvious that the Saudis were involved. But, uh, you know, I I guess we'll get into this, but but clearly a, a direct line of connection to Cheney and Bush.
0: Paul, you interviewed Senator Bob Graham some years ago. He was in an important position to learn about the Saudi Arabian involvement. Who's Bob Graham and what did he tell you?
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the real significance of Graham's interview um, is, is less about the Saudis and more about the role of Bush and Cheney. First of all, uh, Senator Bob Graham was the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee for many years. He previously was governor of Florida. Um, he's the co-chair of, what I, uh, of the joint congressional investigation into 9-11, the one I was just mentioning. Um, they were at this for, I don't know, close to a year. They had millions of dollars to, uh, and, and a team of investigators. So what I'm about to tell you that Graham told me is not the views of some crackpot individual or even rational individual. This is a guy who had a whole team of investigators looking into this stuff. And, 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 and he told me what went far beyond What's in the 28 pages and the official report? Um, I'm not sure why. Uh, There are other people that had to sign on to that report, including Nancy Pelosi, by the way, uh, signed that joint congressional uh, report. Uh, So uh, you know, people were aware. Uh, Now that the the report does not talk about the role of Bush and Cheney, it talks about the Saudis. Uh, So there's nothing new. Um, Pelosi and others in leadership, both on the Republican and Democratic side, and they all know this stuff. But what he told me that isn't in the report, in answer to my question, I said to him, in the first in a series of interviews, I've interviewed him about I don't know seven eight times now altogether. Um, in the first series of interviews, which I think take place in 2010, if my memory serves me right, um, I said do you think there was a deliberate attempt by President Bush and Vice President Cheney to create a culture within the intelligence agencies of not wanting to know? And I explained to him several examples of intelligence that had been generated prior to 9-11 that, if acted on, could have prevented 9-11. In fact, uh, Graham actually wrote a book about this. And he, he had a list of 10 reasons to impeach President Bush. Number one, failing to prevent 9-11. Anyway, his first answer to me was, uh, if all the players on a football team are running in the same direction, there's got to be a coach. Well, the first time I interviewed him, he was a little bit restrained how far he would go. Uh, but after the uh, declassification, of the twenty-eight famous twenty-eight pages for people that don't know this story, the, this congressional report, uh, there were twenty-eight pages the White House insisted were redacted. To be redacted, and there, the in the, it's in those pages you get very specific information about the Saudis and and the role of Prince Bandar. Well, after a lot of pressure from the 9-11 families, again they're the ones that have really forced this. Uh, question out into the open or, or as, as open as it is. Um, the nine, these 28 pages were declassified by Obama, but still with a lot of redactions. But once they were released, uh, Graham felt a lot ease, uh, freer to talk. And I said to him— I, I actually played back that part of the interview where talked about a football team and a coach. I said, listen, who's the coach? And he says, President Bush and, and Vice President Cheney, he says, I, I said, you're saying they deliberately uh, disorganized the Intelligence uh, Committee. I may not have used exactly those words, but more or less. Um, and he said, it, he said, yes, but it goes further than that. He said they did some acts that directly facilitated the uh, 9-11 attacks, not just uh, suppressed intelligence. Uh, intelligence. and I'll get into my interview with Thomas Drake about how the intelligence got suppressed, although I asked Graham about this, too. But listen to these examples. They're they're uh, outstanding. Outrageous, I guess is the word. Um, He gave me two or three examples of facilitating. Number one, uh, this famous memo, Bin Laden Plans to Attack America, That is all the, you know, was talked about a lot at the 9 11 hearings. It was read out, you know, on television during those hearings. Condoleezza Rice claims they're a historical document, ridiculous. Uh, After Tennant and Richard Clark, Tennant head of the CIA and Clark, the anti terrorism czar, uh, after uh, they're saying their hair was on fire all summer, telling Condoleezza Rice something's coming then she thinks this is a historical document, which is a joke. Anyway, so the document goes to Rice and uh, Bush. Well, Graham tells me that the normal protocol is after the presidential briefing, there's another briefing goes out. It's called the principal's briefing. It goes to heads of agencies and undersecretaries of of, certain departments. And any information that's in the presidential briefing that might require action by any agency shows up in the principal's briefing. Well, Bin Laden plans to attack America, you would think, might require some action. So in the next principal's briefing, Graham tells me, it's omitted. And he took this, and and he believes that this was a conscious effort, to stop, for example, the FAA putting the airports on heightened alert or immigration on higher alert. Number two, never mind putting immigration on higher alert. Now, by the way, I have all this on camera. You can go to the analysis.news. I have all the Graham interviews up there. Um, Graham tells me, far from putting immigration on alert about potential terrorists coming in and potential Saudis, It's the opposite. Graham tells me that the White House issued orders to immigration not to stop any Saudi citizen from entering the United States. Any. They get in without questioning. One guy, according to Graham, one immigration officer in uh, Miami, stopped a Saudi that Graham's investigators concluded was actually meant to be one of the hijackers. He did stop him because he hadn't read the memo and was actually disciplined for not reading the memo. Um, It goes on. Uh, Number three, uh, people that followed this story, it's 20 years now, so people probably forget that within just a few days of uh, 9-11, when the airspace of the United States, if if memory serves me right, is still closed to uh, at least commercial aircraft, A whole plane load of Saudis is allowed to leave, including many members of the Bin Laden family. Graham told me there are many people on that plane that his committee would have wanted to uh, interview as part of their investigation into 9-11 and couldn't. And when they asked the Saudi government to allow them to be interviewed, they they were told no. Um, So uh, there's other examples, too, Graham told me about. Um, so it wasn't just uh, a suppression. Paul, you interviewed a top
1: official in the National Security Administration, the NSA, and I'm talking about the whistleblower, Tom Drake. What did you learn from him?
2: Well, this is the, the, the sort of key that unlocks the dynamic how all this worked. Um, and Graham essentially confirmed what Drake told me. Um, And and, and let me just put this again into a little context, because I'm not sure I said this at the beginning or not. Because people are sitting here listening to all this, and you know, why would they do all of this? Well, the why I think is obvious. It was it was all about uh, preparing American public opinion for the invasion of Iraq. Uh, And it's if you go back to the document, the Project for New American Century, uh, which a bunch of neocons wrote. As a sort of letter to Clinton and and that group of neocons that wrote that document, including Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, uh, they formed the whole team around the uh, Secretary of Defense, um, and of course Cheney was part of was a signatory to that document. Um, in that document, it says two things, and and this is this is the key to the why, and then I'll get to Drake. Number one, uh, the United States will not. American people, I should say, uh, will not support uh, uh, another major military intervention, and then number two, will not support a massive buildup of the American military, which means large amount of money, increase in the Pentagon budget, without, and I'm quoting here, another Pearl Harbor. Now people that follow this story are, are well aware of this document, but a lot of people are not, especially younger people. Well, it's, it's kind of obvious. 9-11 became the Pearl Harbor, and it was uh, the invasion of Iraq. And it wasn't just about Iraq. I think this is the critical issue. And, and to understand the Saudi interest here and the American interest, the ultimate prize was regime change in Iran. And in this document and other things that were written by these, these uh, neocons, the agenda was overthrow Saddam in Iraq overthrow Assad in Syria, and that's to prepare the conditions for regime change in Iran, plus a massive buildup, meaning a massive expenditure to the military-industrial complex. All right, so that's that's the motivation here. Um, and of course, the Saudis are as interested in regime change in Iran or even more than the Americans are at least uh, may still be, but certainly back then. All right, Drake. Drake was one of the uh, American global uh, leading minds in cybersecurity um, com- digit- dealing with digital data and uh, was hired by the NSA uh, and and ironically uh, coincidentally his first day of work was 9/11 and he go <laughs> the morning he goes there the attacks take place in the you know later that day um, but within a week or two a couple of analysts come to see him now he's very senior he's uh, he's a senior executive reports directly to the number three person in the leadership of the NSA so that's a very senior position a couple a couple of analysts come see him in a couple a couple of weeks after the attack and they show him and they say and this is Drake telling me again this on camera Um uh, we had the whole thing. We, they had intercepted, according to Drake, the NSA had intercepted phone calls between all but three of the hijackers and a, an a al-Qaeda safe house in Yemen. And the entire plot was known. They had recorded, intercepted telephone conversations and knew the whole thing. And the analyst came to Drake and said, this is crazy. We told we had a, We told the leadership of the NSA, and nothing was done with it. So Drake has told me this on camera. He has actually seen the documentation of The Intercept. And then I say to him, well, this doesn't make any sense. The leadership of the NSA, even if Bush Cheney uh, had kind of created this culture the way Graham talked about, uh, of not— prioritizing terrorism and so on, even if that, there's no way they sit on something like this. They couldn't take the responsibility. And he said, of course not. He says there was a back channel to Cheney. And this is the, 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 the kind of other kind of secret of understanding how they did this. Um, George Tenet testified at the 9-11 uh, hearings, commission hearings that in his first presidential briefing, he told Bush the number one threat to national security is bin Laden and al-Qaeda. Now, let's remember, on the FBI Most Wanted list, bin Laden had been number one for the previous five years. He was not some unknown quantity that just showed up on 9-11. The FBI already knew he was involved in, in the coal attack, the attacks on the coal uh, Navy ship. Uh, you know, whatever they knew about him, it was enough to say he's number one on the FBI most wanted list. Okay. Tenet reaffir- confirms he's the number, he and Al Qaeda, number one threat to national security. So what what is one of Bush's first moves dealing with national security? He demotes the anti-terrorism czar, Richard Clark. Richard Clarke under Clinton was a cabinet-level position. He could call the principal, remember the principals, he could call a meeting of the principals on his own. He didn't have to go through Condoleezza Rice. He gets demoted by Bush and now reports to Condoleezza Rice and testifies at the 9-11 hearings that he couldn't get a meeting of the principals called, even though... The quote from him and others, but I think it was Clark's quote, are, my hair was on fire. There was so much intelligence coming in. Now, there was a lot of intelligence coming in, Clark was aware of, but some of the most critical intelligence, he wasn't aware of. And for example, um, and this is a a little piece of video, which I keep playing every time I do a report on this, uh, and I have to say here I've offered everything I've got to mainstream media over and over again with no interest whatsoever, including my interviews with with Clark and Drake. And I'm not like an unknown quantity here, even if they think, you know, I've been working in more independent, marginalized media. I come from CBC in Canada. I was the executive producer of the uh, main uh, political affairs debate show daily for 10 years. Uh, I've made documentary films for all the major broadcasters in the world. So I'm not, you know, a compl- you know, completely marginal character, although I think they have tried to make me so. But at any rate, nobody's been interested in, in all this stuff I've got. Drake, there's a critical piece of video with Richard Clark. He, I think he, I don't know if he was drinking or what. He was interviewed by two university students and he said, The San Diego cell in California that the FBI knew about and never told the CIA. And the CIA knew about and never told the FBI. The 9-11 Commission depicted that as if it was like Keystone Cops. They wouldn't even talk to each other. Clark says, I was deliberately bypassed. Neither the CIA or FBI told me about the San Diego cell. And he says there's absolutely no way that happens. And I have him saying this on camera without a deliberate conscious decision not to tell me the anti-terrorism czar who's supposed to be the central repository for all of this information. And what Drake adds to this is that they did report, but to Cheney. And what Cheney did, he got all the intelligence agencies to report to him, including military intelligence that also had pre-9-11 uh, uh, intelligence that could have prevented the attacks. And he just sat on it. He just would let the information flow in and, no, and he would give no instructions to any of the agencies to act. Quite the contrary, as I said earlier. it actually He actually helped facilitate it in other ways.
0: What do you think was known by the intelligence community, specifically that part of the community that reported to Vice President Dick Cheney before the events of 9-11? Is there evidence that he manipulated the intelligence and set up a back channel? Let me answer first of all
2: by saying I, what I know, I know from the people I've interviewed, uh, you know, uh, most importantly, Graham and uh, Thomas Drake. To some extent, also John Kariakou and some others, but those two are the, are the key. Um, they're off, awfully credible sources. Uh, you know, As I said earlier, Graham was the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Drake, a senior executive at the NSA. So I, I don't have any ability to have my own investigators. I can't subpoena anybody. Um, so what I can say is what I've been told by them, and these, and, and they say without doubt uh, that's what happened. That the uh, Richard, uh, as I said earlier, the Richard Clark is on the record of uh, saying that he was bypassed on critical intelligence, and, and it was reported. And, and Drake says it's reported to Cheney, uh, Clark, inf- the inference from Clark is it was po- reported to Cheney. Um, and one of the one of the arguments that's given about why the administration didn't focus uh, on terrorism and why, even after being told by George Tennant, uh, that uh, terrorism was the number one threat to national security. Um, and it's this deprioritization is the reason that there was such chaos amongst the intelligence agencies. Like, for example, there's this Colleen Rowley story. Uh, if people remember, she's an FBI agent, I think in Minnesota. And uh, she gets a phone call from uh, a flight school, and the, and the guy who teaches, he says, I've got this guy from the Middle East, and he wants to learn how to take off, but he doesn't want to know how to land. So she finds this suspicious. Uh, she sends this to FBI headquarters, and, and, she, and then she asks for a warrant to go into the guy's computer, and it's denied. Um, She later becomes one of the Time Magazine People of the Year as a whistleblower. Uh, She's completely credible. Um, Now, this you know this this what had been been uh, uh, explained as this is part of the FBI and others taking a lead from Bush Cheney of deprioritizing terrorism and prior prioritizing big state actors, meaning Russia and China. And there's always this talk that, oh, Condoleezza Rice didn't focus on this because her background was about Soviet Union and Russia, and that's what they were concerned about, and they just didn't think terrorism was a big deal and all this. It's such obvious BS because we know now from many sources, including Richard Clark's book and Gates' book and others, what their priority wasn't Russia and China. Their priority was Iraq from day one. Uh, the, the the you know within days of the attack of nine eleven, Bush is telling uh, both the CIA and the Pentagon get ready for Iraq. Focus on Iraq. It was never even about Afghanistan. Uh, that that became a requirement to to attack and invade. Afghanistan, when it just came obvious to everybody, bin Laden had operated out of Afghanistan. And uh, that's a whole other story, which I can get into. As you know, I made a film about Afghanistan because there's all this talk about uh, uh, that the uh, Taliban wouldn't hand over bin Laden, and that's the reason for invading. Afghanistan, which is actually not true if you want to know more. I've actually interviewed a member of the Central Council of the Taliban and in fact they were ready to hand over bin Laden. Uh, the, uh, so so the the evidence of the back channel is based on Drake Graham. It's based on Richard Clark, Saying he was bypassed on critical intelligence. And there's a certain logic. I mean, is it really possible? And this is where you get a need for an inquiry. Because, yeah, what I'm about to say is not like hard evidence. But, God, a lot of people have been convicted of murder on a lot less circumstantial evidence than what I'm about to say, which is, is it possible that all the intelligence agencies? That had so much pre-9/11 intelligence that could have stopped the attacks that they just sat on it. I mean, is that possible? If it didn't go to Richard Clark and he claims it didn't, they just all of them decided, "Oh, I'm not. I'm not going to tell." Uh, there's a there's one of the uh, uh, military intelligence. This is a report Jason Leopold worked on, um, and I I I I released on video a lot of his report, uh, the Joint Military Intelligence actually was asked to model in the year early 2001, late 2000, what, what might another terrorist attack look like? And they modeled, get this, they modeled planes get hijacked, flown into the World Trade Center, and the buildings fall down. They modeled this, before 9-11, and did a PowerPoint explaining their modeling, and they gave that up to chain of command. Now, when the uh, leadership of the military intelligence was called before the Joint Congressional Committee and asked, did you have anything that indicated that these attacks might take place? And they said no. So the the guy that led the, the military intelligence team was furious, and he made a report to the Inspector General of the Army, saying, it's not true. We actually had modeled exactly what happened, and we have a PowerPoint, and he sent the PowerPoint to the Inspector General. Well, the Inspector General comes back and says, all the leadership of the intelligence did nothing inappropriate. So this guy's furious, and he leaks the stuff to Jason Leopold, and I think the other guy's name was Jeffrey Kay, I think, something like that. And they actually did a – the guy himself, the the guy from military intelligence, does a FOIA request to the inspector general to get his PowerPoint, and he gets it. And you can go to my site. I have it too. We actually have the – Jason had the actual inspector general's report with a stamp on his PowerPoint, explaining how planes are going to hit the buildings and the buildings fall down. So is it really possible that so many intelligence agencies just sit on this information without passing it up somewhere? I, it's just impossible. So yeah, it's a kind of a supposition, but I think it's pretty. It's, it's enough as a supposition that there still needs to be an independent inquiry into what really happened because the uh, truth of this has not come out, and it's as I say. This isn't just a problem of some history. This is a problem of such deliberate uh, uh, lying about nine eleven, deliberate we know deliberate lying into the Iraq War, and you know are we going to see it again? And this time, it, you know it's you know if Trump had had his way. In fact, if Bush Cheney hadn't been blocked by the Pentagon, uh, in all likelihood, we would have seen uh, another. Example, except this time they'll try to pin it on the Iranians. You interviewed
1: retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who was Secretary of State Colin Powell's chief of staff prior to 9 11. What did you learn from Wilkinson? How does he feel about the speech Powell gave at the United Nations promoting the attack on Iraq?
2: Well, first of all, he feels culpability himself. And he went along with what he had by then come to know wasn't true. And Powell's thing about Scud missiles, you know surrounding Beirut, uh, armed with biological weapons pointed at Israel, uh, you know, he knew this wasn't this, this was be a lot of what Powell said there was being manufactured. And it's you know one of the not one of, the greatest regret of his life, that he didn't quit before that speech. Um, I, I Just let me add a little note of my own. Um, I, it's my under, belief that if they actually believed any of what they said at the UN, they wouldn't have invaded. You don't invade a country that has Scud missiles with biological weapons uh, aimed at Israel. That's a pretty good deterrent. You don't risk it, and also you look at the pictures of American soldiers driving across Iraq towards uh, Baghdad. <laughs> you know, almost none of them are wearing masks. Uh, anyway, we we know the whole thing was a big lie, uh, and Wilkerson, uh, he once said, uh, he said it to me, and I think he said it elsewhere. The people that, or you know, Powell and Bush and Cheney, Rumsfeld, are war criminals, and uh, that. He said, "If they go to jail, I probably need to go with them." Um, I, I, I so I, really, I, you know, I've interviewed him many times now, and uh, you know, I, I believe he's sincere in this. Uh, you know, the other most important thing about how sincere he is is that he's almost the only one, and maybe, maybe the only one, but certainly one of the only ones who didn't cash in on all this. All the other people are millionaires, multimillionaires. They all got jobs in the military-industrial complex. Uh, they're, they're fabulously wealthy, and he certainly could have been. All he had to do was keep his mouth shut. He could have even just you know, resigned and not said anything, but instead he's become you know, one of the harshest critics of US foreign policy and of the military-industrial complex. And I know he lives quite modestly. He had a you know, professor's salary. You know, he got a job teaching afterwards, uh, but nothing compared to what he could have been. I, I'm sure he's very smart and understands geopolitics. easily could have been on the board of some big arms manufacturer. And, and, but basically, what he said, the essence of it is, is how banal the whole motivation was. There was even less about the geopolitics of regime change in Iraq, Syria, Iran, which it was, but it was more about money making. You know, we know that uh, Dick Cheney uh, and his ties to Halliburton, uh, you know, he was CEO of Halliburton. He still owns stock, you know, in a blind trust, supposedly, after he became vice president. But Halliburton got a no bid, $7 billion contract. Uh, just days prior to the invasion of Iraq, in fact, uh, there's a, a woman named Bunny Greenhouse who oversaw uh, contracts for the Pentagon, She's a civilian, and, and looking for, you know, things that are wrong. And she actually re- reported to the Inspector General that why was this an, a no bid contract? Because there's at least three, four other con- companies that could have done the same work, which was restructuring the the Iraqi oil industry after the invasion. I mean, that's what they were focused on. grabbing the oil. and uh, She reported that this contract, and she also reported that this contract was being directly uh, steered, navigated by Rumsfeld's office, which was completely out of the norm. Normally, it would come out of some normal Pentagon uh, acquisition office. She was demoted. She was uh, put, into a, put into some job where she had absolutely nothing to do. She never got promoted again, never got a wage increase, and actually sued the Pentagon later and won. She actually won almost a million dollars in a lawsuit uh, over the Cheney-Halliburton contract. It's about, it was about money. And, and you know, the, it's always about more than one thing. It's not like the geopolitics doesn't matter. But even the geopolitics is mostly about money-making. And that's Wilkerson's main theme. And and of course, you know, in talking to him, we've all also, and Ellsberg, who I've been talking to, we also learn about uh, the whole nuclear weapons plant is mostly about money, too, except there they can end life on Earth.
1: Do you believe the 9 11 attack was a pivotal point in U.S. and world history?
2: Uh, yes. Um, and, and, and maybe not. I mean, in one obvious way, it was because it became the rationale for a massive expenditure in the Pentagon, as I said, but also a massive growth in the national security state, you know, from the Patriot Act to the NSA spying on everyone. It became a justification for unmitigated uh, spying on Americans and certainly everyone else in the world, too. You know the kind of safeguards that had existed. Uh, everything gets thrown out. You know, torture is allowable, and 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 of course the most important thing is uh, the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people died, millions of people were displaced. Uh, uh, so it, one of the great war crimes since World War II, maybe the greatest war crime since World War II. Uh, well, I don't know. Vietnam War, I guess, is the biggest war crime, but uh, after Vietnam, you've got Iraq. But it created uh, not just even in the United States. It created a rationale for this great strengthening of the national security states in most states, if not all uh, of states. Um, it, 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 but the other thing it did, which doesn't get talked about enough, is that the media Was intimidated, and it's. I think it's one of the most important points of 9/11 that the media has been intimidated, looking into what really happened on 9/11. The media was intimidated uh, in playing ball with the lead up to the war in Iraq. Uh, You know, there's a, a quote from Dan Rather, you know, the former CBS anchor, but unfortunately, he said this to the BBC, and he didn't say it in the U.S. But he said, after 9-11, if you critiqued the White House, it was like, and I'm quoting him, I think, pretty directly, is like having a flaming tire of patriotism put around your neck. And this is using an example of what happens in, happened in the South African townships. If they thought uh, somebody was working with the police, they would set a flaming tire around somebody's neck. Um, that was the, 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 the ability of the White House. Now, George Bush, President Bush, prior to 9-11, there was a television show on ABC, network TV, called That's My Bush. It was a parody of the Bush family directly. He was held in such contempt that you could actually have a mainstream TV show ridiculing the Bush family. Well, after 9-11, all of a sudden, he's a hero. That show goes off the air, and the media plays ball. Now, I'm not saying there's no media that wasn't critical. I would give McClatchy some uh, props. Is that the word? They didn't buy the whole uh, weapons of mass destruction argument, but we know the New York Times did, and almost the entire uh, network television did, and it hasn't changed that much. 9-11— changed the media culture to a large extent. It's not that they were always fantastic. I look at how how much trouble and difficulty it was to get the Pentagon Papers, but it did get out the Pentagon Papers, Ellsberg's thing, finally. The newspapers had the guts finally to do it. But it took a hell of a long time for the uh, mainstream media to deal with the uh, lies about the Iraq War, and they still haven't. Dealt with the lies of 9/11. So yeah, it's it's a very pivotal event in in many ways. But let me focus on on that. Is that this all the wars? Every one of them is the whole history of national security state of U.S. militarism is mostly a fabric of lies, and people just don't get it. I mean, in the schools, of course, it's never really exposed. And the media that does it, like yours or mine or some others that do get at this stuff, you know, we get so marginalized that they don't really care that we we can, you know, poke through the fabric of Americanism. You know, once in a while, events tear the shredding of the Americanism, but it doesn't take long for the media to bring, you know, close ranks again.
0: Paul Jay, thank you very much. We truly, truly appreciate your fine investigative reporting. And this is what is probably the biggest story of, of our the last part of our lifetime.
2: Thanks, Michael. Yeah, you can find me at the analysis.news. And it needs the the, the analysis.news.
0: It needs the the. People will go to theanalysis.news to fill in what you haven't had a chance to tell us. Thank you so much, Paul Jay, for your extremely important work. We truly appreciate your being on Law & Disorder.
2: Thank you, Paul.
0: Thanks very much. If you have any comments or questions about this segment or any others, please visit us at lawanddisorder.org. That's lawandisorder one word law